That is so funny because I was just on a plane talking to a guy who was Jesus Christ Church of Latter-day Saints, you know, and he was talking about being a missionary. And mm -hmm. I just said, that's so, be I wish even in the Catholic Church, we, that was like not a requirement, but it was like seriously like, hey, we really urge every person to go be a missionary or to do some, like, because in such a culture that is very selfie, selfish, narcissistic, like it's all about the self. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I told him, I said, Pope John Paul came before he was the Pope. He came to Vatican II with that line. And it it was put in Gaudium et Spes. We can only find ourselves in becoming a sincere gift of self. And that's that, really Yeah. And, and truth, really like him. when you give of yourself and forgetting, it, it's not, yeah, it's just so beautiful that you just said that, like getting outside of ourselves. That's a beautiful mode, mode mm -hmm. of therapy. Which we do yeah, well so sometimes, or sometimes it's kicking and screaming. Yeah. <laughs> learning how to become a gift. Yeah. yeah. So what That's is true. the difference? What, what would be the difference between, you know, people like, oh, I'm in spiritual direction. I'm good. Like, could you, could you share about like the nuances between, <laughs> I love your face. She's like, yes. <laughs> spiritual direction um, versus like seeing a therapist. Could you do them at the same time? Like what, would, what are the nuances? What do you, what would you say? About because that? I spent, um, I mean, both Jackie and I have been involved in youth ministry in one way, shape or form since we got out of it. I worked at a Catholic school for close to a decade doing campus ministry and teaching, but yeah, there's, there's times where it's like, there's the spiritual formation and the human formation, but then there's like the clear, the psychological care needed is, in, is like, this needs a, a specialist or this needs Sure. something else like yeah the the, diff, the the fact that as a whole human person it is so connected. it's all interconnected but sometimes it's all interconnected but at the same time it's not the same right so those are two so you can have both at the same time but you cannot replace one with the other um so the way i who we are is like especially like how we see the human person as catholics this is foundational and like one of the, one of the to your point bobby you mentioned earlier like the whole person so one of the the i guess springs right when we're hoping to form the whole person into a saint like one of the facets of that or springs or things that pop up I'm imagining soil and like all these things popping up and the garden is the whole person that's the image in my head right now welcome into the weirdness of my mind <laughs> I love <laughs> so it. I was love trying it. to avoid just saying it but I'm just gonna be weird and so one of the things that springs up right from the whole person is is their mental health psychology and so it's a part of the whole and so my hope is for ministry to just continue to grow and being able to hold the space for the whole person and know like, okay, well, this part, this aspect of their lives needs some care. So let me, you know, refer here or get them here to that, the person who has the expertise there, right? So if it was their physical health, you would know where to like, hey, it looks like you've been struggling with your breathing. Do you need to see a pulmonologist, right? Or it looks like you've been struggling with gray sin. Do you need to go see a priest and go to confession, <laughs> right? Like our spiritual guides help like, direct us where we need to go um, with the sacraments of the foundation, the faith of the foundation. And so you can have both at the same time, a spiritual director and a, and a counselor. They do very different. They have a very different ministry, um, but I don't recommend replacing one for the other. So because you're seeing a spiritual director doesn't mean you may not have need for a counselor. 
In spiritual direction, we are talking about fostering your relationship with God through growing your prayer life, um, helping to you to grow in virtue so that you can become a saint. What we talk a lot about in the mental health field, where I get at like, what kind of symptoms am I dealing with? What kind of treatment plan are we putting together? You know, that, that the client, that's the kind of treatment they hope for. Um, so that you can grow in this dimension of gift, oftentimes I'm looking at all their relationships, how they relate to themselves, how they relate to God, and how they relate to others. Seeing So in, in mental health, I'm looking at what symptoms are at play, and then how do I leverage their gifts um, and areas of wellness in their life to bring them to greater wellness, right, in, in how they relate but that also ends up fostering in them virtue, right? So that they can become saints. So you can work on becoming a saint in the counseling room and you can work on becoming a saint in the spiritual direction room. Um, but the spiritual direction room is not the same as the counseling room. Yeah. But when you were going and cause you were, you were a sister, you hadn't taken final vows yet, right? When you were going through your schooling. Sure. Yeah. You were still a sister um, or you were a sister, but were there things like, because I know like obviously with in psychology, there are certain things that psychologists learn that maybe as a Catholic, you're like, uh, that don't really agree with your our Catholic faith. Or were, were there some things that when you were in school, you were like, I like, was there anything like that that you could share? I was waiting for it to get real bad. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, I have a sister who since went to get a mental health degree and it was real bad for her. Really? Um, but yeah, it was bad. Like she ended up switching schools because it wasn't like they were teaching her. It's like they were indoctrinating her. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that experience. They were educating me and like putting the science on the, you know, on the table for me and like, they weren't indoctrinating me. They were helping me to learn and be educated. And it's just kind of, it's a different formation of the mind. Like, and so, yeah, there were things that I read in the book that I was like, that doesn't match with my faith, but I didn't have professors saying like, everything you read in these books, every research study we give you, you have to agree with and be this kind of counselor. Mm -hmm. So I, but we were very careful about choosing the program. It was a secular program. The director of my program was an atheist. <laughs> um, the man who directed my program was an atheist. Um, but even when he met me, you know, I was sitting in my habit when I interviewed with him. And when he met me, he said, um, my hope is to provide you with a level of clinical expertise so that you can go back and serve your church well. That's, That's awesome. what he said. You know, <laughs> there's an atheist. So I just, I had a really wonderful experience. I imagine it was unique. I remember even when I went into multicultural class, I went in, you know, with my defenses up, you know, because that's the course <laughs> that, you know, that's the course where a lot of these hot topics and Catholicism really comes up. And like some of the ways of thinking about mental health, um, some of that indoctrination can occur. So I went in like, you know, my defenses up and ready. And even that course, like it was, I was being formed to like, receive people in truth, which is what I want to do in order to counsel well. And I need to be able for them to come to me and tell me where they are, to have an understanding of the language they're using and how, what they mean when they say what they say. Um, and so, so that I can receive them well and then help them, help them on this journey. But for me, it's always to grow in a dimension of gift and to foster virtue. Um, and so, even when I learned, like, there's a model for sexual identity development. When I read that, I was like, that would actually probably help people who don't want to 
live lives governed by same-sex attraction. So like when I read that in the multicultural book, I was like, actually that applied without an agenda, <laughs> like right? Without like a, and, um, and, it, and trying to indoctrinate a person could actually help a person achieve a goal of virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I mean, I know that's not many people's experience. I think I had really excellent professors. They were just really interested in being good clinicians and clinicians are not about indoctrination. Um, we're about like, um, it's really kind of a deeply maternal space, like receiving the person so that they may flourish in the counseling room. And so um, another thing that, again, I thought was gonna be like this awful experience and it was enlightening for me and it like helped me to grow as a better Catholic. We, in multicultural class, they asked us to pick a group that we have strong bias against and go be with them. (laughs) So we all had to pick whoever we were going to pick. So people picked a Catholic church and they went to a Catholic church. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I picked um, feminist. When I hear the word feminist, like I can feel it physically in my body. Like my chest gets tight. (laughs) And I get a little (laughs) nauseous. And I was like, this is not healthy. So I was like, I have strong, like irrational bias towards anyone who says they're a feminist. And so I had to call these people who had a monthly group, tell them I'd like to come. I had to go and sit with them at a monthly meeting. (laughs) it um, It was just really interesting, like to discover all the mess I was doing and attributing it to Jesus when it was not of Jesus, it was of my ego. Like, and so to just like for the Lord to show me like all this stuff, like that's you, you know? And so I went there in my habit and it was a really beautiful encounter. I had a real, a real, I was there for a reason. There was a woman I was there to be of service to. Um, So I don't know, there was something very mystical about it. And I can't just say it was this or that, like, and under no circumstances was I imposed upon or did they seek to indoctrinate me, but I was working with people who had a really deep respect for me as a human person. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful was, assignment yeah, for, <laughs> for anybody. Anyone, period. For what anyone. group do you have a bias against and go to a team meeting? Yeah. <laughs> go be with them. <laughs> and see that people... That we are we are all human beings. I, I think that that's the hard part about social media is that what we do is we start placing, uh, and, and sister, you said this on Twitter and I about died because you're like, there are some friends I have to block and I, or not block, but like I have to mute because, mm-hmm. and, and I, I totally understand because there are people in my life I have to, I don't want to see on social media because I want to love them in person. Yeah, I want to love them in person because the problem is on social media, we can start assigning or we get angry, like we get angry at people's thoughts. And granted, I will say people on social media don't also don't always have the um, prudence of what they should. It's like, let me just post everything I'm thinking. I'm like, but you wouldn't do that in person. Like you wouldn't always say everything you're thinking when you're in front of a, a person, especially if it's rude, if it's me. Like, so I, I thought that was so great that even you sister were like, there are some people I have to mute them. Because I have to mute. I, I want to love them. I don't know if this is an appropriate phrase. Y'all are more theologians than I am, but it's like, there's no prudence of the flesh, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this in the flesh. And so 
it was a great assignment given to me by, you know, people who would not ever call themselves of a Catholic mindset, but to send us to be incarnationally present is quite Catholic. Right. Um, and so again, like, yeah, there were things I read in studies or textbooks. So I was like, ah, that's not for me, but I was never told it had to be for me in order for me to be a good counselor. I was very affirmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a weird, this is a weird question. Maybe like I was part of my, um, a friend of mine was saying like in the field of psychology or when she looks up, like as a parent, our kids, when they're little, especially like little are nuts. Uh, well, they're nuts, but they, but when they're like, you know, exploring themselves, like our kids, you know, when, when, when they touch themselves and find out like they're, they have a penis and a vagina, you know, she was like, what do I do with my boy? And I had heard it from a, a Catholic therapist, like to just not, not to shame. And obviously we don't ever want to shame our children about like, just to call it by their names and say, listen, your penis is not a toy. So we don't play with it. Right. Like we find out the proper use for things. But she was saying when she was going on online, like, how do I do this? Like a lot of psychologists were affirming like, Oh, they need to play with themselves. They need to like, you know, self-pleasure. Like what, I don't know if you've ever had to answer that question. Um, so you can say no, but what, what would but you, you do now? But you do. Like, what, what would you say to a parent who's asking that when the world of psychology is like, Oh, they self-pleasure because even as adults, they're like, yeah, we need to self-pleasure. And as Catholics, we're like, no, our body parts are good and beautiful. Our penises and vaginas that have actual names, they are good and beautiful and for a purpose, but they're not toys. We don't play with them. Like, what would you say to a parent who's like maybe asking that question? So the only piece with the feedback you're getting is accurate. Like we don't, we don't touch our penises and play with our penises unless like, you know, we were in the bathroom or we're bathing or things like that. Like to set the proper boundaries for when we play with those body parts. What I add, I actually had this conversation in the hallway the other day with one of our younger grade teachers because she's got a, a room full of boys and it's like open season for play with peepees because there's no girls in there to, you know, to no, balance true. it out. <laughs> so, true. so she's like, what do I do? And what I, the only missing piece, I think sometimes, is to help take the charge off it for adults because we're bringing all our own trash, you know, all our own trash thinking, all our own um, shame-based um, fr- um, frameworks we have for understanding mm-hmm. our body, we're bringing that, right, subconsciously into our parenting. And so the only piece I'd add is, yes, like to teach them, like our penises and vaginas, um, we don't play in touch with those because we don't, like we want to keep them healthy and safe. That's what, you know, one reason, and your hands are dirty. Right. <laughs> so another reason is we only touch those when we're bathing or going potty um, and they're private parts. And so we don't touch them in public either. And we don't, and we don't let anybody else touch them. Right. So right. they're private. But then I would add to like, let parents know, especially around like that, that age, four to six, there's a lot of nerve endings growing there on boys and their penises. And that's why they're tugging and pulling. Like it's because <laughs> there's more nerve endings there than any other part of their body. And so just to educate parents about that, this is not problematic sexual behavior. That thinks our minds, right, have some of that shame-based thinking. Right. And so we're getting kind of worked up and they can sense some of that. Right. Just, you know, there's something scientific going on here and it's just another time to educate them and and these kids like it's not like they're doing it like especially when kids are before the age of reason they don't know it's not like it's Mm -hmm. a in they they don't have this intent that we assign to that because of our 
uh, either our shame or, or yeah, just our upbringing or the culture. Yeah. And yeah. so it's interesting, like when you say like some mental health professionals will say, let them pleasure themselves. That's an imposition of your framework. Hmm. Like they were they seeking to pleasure themselves. Right. <laughs> so it's so interesting how we like, you know, anyway, just what we what we do with kids and how, you know, imposing our our perception of it like onto something that's just it's scientific it's developmental and so that's the part i just kind of educate parents this is a scientific reality it's developmentally appropriate it's actually not sexual um and so and then what's the appropriate handling of private parts yeah there's also just the mischief of kids and they see like this is making my parents uncomfortable (laughs) so i will keep doing it because it gets attention, right? Because it gets attention. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. all. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. If we could go to um, just kind of broad stroke, what do you see the emotional, the biggest need for kids today? Um, we're parents of little ones. We're very sensitive to the time period we're living in with technology all over the place, life after a pandemic. Uh, the rise of the internet. What are you seeing? Just what do kids need today or seemingly need today more than ever? Kids need more than ever. It is more than ever. Like it's always been the need, but it is more than ever because we have, we do have like more of a culture of disconnection because, because of the place of technology, the role of technology in our lives. So the human person scientifically is made for connection and then we understand this in Gaudi Metzpez right we can't understand ourselves in isolation science affirms that our brains work that way um so there's stuff that goes on in the brain that like affirms how deeply connected we are because the two of you sit across from each other and only one person rubs their hands together and the other stood still the other standing still would start to notice tingling and redness in their hands as if they were rubbing their own hands together that's how interconnected we are. Like there are functions in the brain. That's how babies learn to be human. They're born with brains full of something called mirror neurons so that they come into the world ready to learn what it is to be a person. And then they, so the humans on the earth with the greatest number of mirror neurons are babies mm-hmm. because they need us to show them what it is to be a person. Um, and so more than anything, kids need meaningful connection. So I'm, I'm like a broken record telling parents, if someone told me I have to choose between a parent who always gets it right or a parent who struggles and gets it wrong, but makes like real good repairs, I'm going to choose the second parent every day of the week and twice on Sunday um, because that parent is building meaningful connection with their kid. Um, and so that's what kids need the most. They need you there. They need you sincere, showing them what it is to be a person, um, and building real relationships with your kids. They need them. Yeah. As a parent, that's so helpful, especially because, I mean, Bobby, it's so Bobby's like, I've never had to confess the sin of anger until I had children. (laughs) And I have a very, I have my father's, um, 
well, I've had to learn how to not be so angry, but I still do. I mean, kids just, I'm like, man, I feel like the goal as a parent is when your kids are losing their crap. Like you have to be, you're trying, like, I feel like the goal is to learn how to be evenly keeled. Like you're not affected by it because man, they get just so like, (laughs) oh, and so I, I have definitely had to apologize to my children for losing my shit. Like I really have, you know, where I'm just like, Mommy, oh, I don't tell them I'm losing my shit, but they. they <laughs> we now have to add an E to this episode. <laughs> yeah, explicit or just bleep it out. Well, done, um, well done. sorry. Um, you know, I thought that when I heard that, like the repair is more important, that just like, oh, thank God. Because we aren't perfect and we. We do have our own wounds. And so even little things setting us off or like the building of, yeah, but to like sit down with our kids or say, I'm sorry, I got so angry at you. Will you forgive me? Um, When I heard, like, I guess when I was taught that about parenthood, it was such like a, yeah, because I guess like I've never had my parents ask for my forgiveness. And you're showing your, a lot of us who are in this, we're these geriatric millennials, you know, like millennials, like stage. I think we're a, a little more aware of our emotions. We're a little more aware of like, hey, our parents didn't always affirm this or our parents didn't ask for forgiveness. And I think that's such a beautiful thing for kids. You, you, you model it, like what it means to be human, what it means to fail, what it means to not know, you know, so that that whole like the repair is so important. Um, it tells them that um, struggles don't mean the relationship is over, right? right? So that's why I don't I don't want a parent who gets it right all the time. They're not gonna teach the the child about truth in relationships and certainly won't teach the child about our relationship with God. Right. And so to be learning how to be restored in relationships, right? It tells us something about who God is right? That we can be restored, that we can seek forgiveness, that we can go to confession, that we can confess our wrongs and begin anew. Like it it reveals something about what's going on between me and God. And so that's why like, I I just, yeah, I deeply respect parents who can go back and say like, I am sorry, we're going to begin again. You know, Um, it teaches them ultimately, I would hope to be able to go back to God and say, God, I am sorry, let's begin again. And, and our, our, our little Zaylee, who is, she used to have tantrums like crazy, like crazy tantrums when she was three, four, actually even two. Uh, and they were so, she would kick and scream. And one time I went in there and sat next to her and I said, Zaylee, why do I love you? And she goes, because we've taught them like to say, I'm your daughter, I'm your son. We don't love them because of their achievements or because of what they do. We want them to know we love them because of who they are. And then I said, Zaylee, do I love you when you do bad things? And she goes, Hmm. Like she didn't, she didn't know. And I said, Zaylee, I love you even when you do bad things. And I said, now it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's not okay to, you know, hit your brother in the face. You know, like we have to learn how to have better coping mechanisms with our anger and our sadness. Um, I said, but I, we, mommy and daddy want the best for you. We want you to do good things, but we love you even when you do bad things. And she went, yes. And her tantrums, it was like they they weren't I mean granted she was getting closer to the age of reason but they she like felt this like okay like it was almost like when she got in trouble she felt this weight of mommy and daddy stop loving me when I when I do something wrong 
And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want my kids to think, like I want my kids to know that. And, and it's so amazing how even now she's six and a half and she has this like, she knows, she knows it, it's such a different, like she knows that we love her, even if she messes up that like, oh, but mommy and daddy still love me. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. And so we, they can recover more quickly from the mistake. Like if if the mistake starts to get oriented towards identity, then you're going to have like secondary <laughs> mistakes mm. and third mistakes and it becomes compounded. Um, and we're like that as adults too. Like sometimes we compound our problems because of our view of our mistakes. And then when they become your identity, like that's who you are and that you need affirmation and I'm yeah. not good enough. And so I need to do the, it's just be, yeah, it keeps yeah. snowballing. There's another thing I like to go through with parents when they're telling me like, you know, how angry they'll get with their kids or how frustrated they'll feel. I really like to help parents like examine closely, like what beliefs and values. There's a worksheet I use. I don't have the worksheet memorized because I use it so much. But like we look at the event and then I ask them, like, how do you interpret what happened? Like, what meaning does it have for you? What were your emotions and body sensations and what did you do? But then I'll ask them, what experiences and beliefs inform your meaning you gave to the event? And a lot of times parents will start to discover, like, I'm bringing a whole bunch of other stuff that got nothing to do with my kids mm-hmm. into this encounter with my kids. Right. Um, and so it's been, it's a real simple worksheet, but I can, I've seen it be really powerful for parents to realize, like, I did not intend to parent from that place, you know, and just to have that awareness that um, when I feel real overwhelmed um, by struggles with my kids, like, how am I interpreting what it means to have this struggle and what beliefs and values are, helps me to form that meaning of it. Right. It's like, why did I lose it? And it's, it's like, is it because I don't feel like I'm, I'm valued I don't feel like I'm being valued. They're not listening. I'm feeling, yeah, it's like, it, it, a lot of times it doesn't have to do with the with kids. <laughs> yeah, it's with it's our own wounds you know, for sure that like, oh, so even for me, and I, I share that with parents too, like to always, or just anybody, like always share, like, or ask yourself why, like, why did I react that way? Mm-hmm. Don't just, you know, move on, but like, ask like, why, why did I? Dude. What does this mean? Yeah, what did it yeah. mean for me? Yeah, what yeah, like for kids, like you it. should know better. Like, well, why do we feel like they should know? But like, ah, I haven't. You should know better. Well, yeah, yeah. They're four, five, six. Like, what do you mean they should know better? And and you shared a helpful inf- infographic recently on social media that was why do I lose my cool at my toddler? And it really was like everything. Like everything on that worksheet was me. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, yep. And so, how much again is it my own wounds, my own? Um, shortcomings that I, that's why I am reacting the way I am to my kids' behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. So sister, you're online, which may surprise people watching that, you know, nuns and sisters can have social media, social media and use the internet. Does your, (laughs) use the internet, does your orders, yeah, does your order specifically have like rules on that? When we're in the novitiate, it's way more strict rules so that they can try to help us foster temperance. And then like, you know, by, so we don't, after the novitiate, once you're in your vows, the rules are not as strict, but we don't ever, I mean, we would never bring phones to the table. We would never bring computers 
to recreation or folks like that. I mean, so you have those kind of about abiding rules. Um, and then there's just a time where you need to be in bed if you plan to have a successful morning. So it's like logic guides a lot of that after the novitiate. The novitiate, it's real strict. Like we don't even email in the novitiate. And and for people who don't know what the novitiate is, how many many years is that? And that's the beginning formation, stages of formation. It's that, yeah. So you are a candidate and a postulant and that takes up about two years. And then you become a novice, which is two years long. Um, And even in postulancy, you really start to have more limits with technology. And then the novitiate, which is your preparation for vows, they call it like your honeymoon before your wedding, (laughs) because you're just like, all you do is pray and study all day. That's it. You clean, then you pray and study and you clean (laughs) on repeat. Uh, But so at that point, there's no phone. There's no, I think they have a shared flip phone. Like for (laughs) emergency, Um, no internet, no emails. There's none of that. And so it's, that's where it's kind of most governed for us. Was that freeing for you or was that just really difficult? Um, It was not difficult. The thing that was really beautiful is it gave me like a whole new perspective on my relationships because we wrote a lot of letters to each other. And with the packages, so it just, um, it was a flourishing in my relationships with my family and friends. Um, That's awesome. The time was, yeah. Bobby, I need you to start writing letters to me when you're away. And we will will, um, not text anymore. Dear honey. I will see you tomorrow. I will see you tomorrow. This letter will get to you. This letter will get to you in five days. Um, Have you ever read the letters between Zelly and Lewis? Have you ever had a chance to read some of them? They're so funny because she's like, you know, gushing, like, my love, my adore you. And and he's like, dear friend. (laughs) Dear person I have married. Oh, my God. He, he was sweet though in some of them, right? It wasn't he? I feel like there was one he was gushy. That was like reading Bobby's, like Bobby's letters when we were dating were so gushy. Like my anyway. heart, my heart is exploding at the thought so, of you. Yeah, and now yeah, and now on. he's like, uh, dear, dear mother of my baby. No, I'm just kidding. You're, you're so good. Moving on, <laughs> sister. Your your social media has helped me. Yeah. Um, so keep doing what you're doing. Do you? approach social media like any specific way like is it i don't i, I appreciate do you give yourself a time limit do you i don't know but i, I just appreciate oh. your your frankness sometimes and so sure. i'd say how much is firing from the hip how much is like let me pray about this before i post it like do you have a a way about it it depends like most of the things i share on social media are just like sharing about ministry in the community so it's just like sharing our life and we really got more into that when we, um, I started, when I joined our vocations team. So that's when I got more into that because that was one of the things we said, like, what are we going to do, you know, to to like do intentionally regarding like fostering vocations. And that was one just kind of like more share, um, share things from our life. And so that's usually, if I'm speaking into um, a difficult situation in the church, that's most often we'll all pause and pray. And what I oftentimes find myself doing is I usually don't want to say anything but if it stays with me like I will because I'm trying to be obedient to Jesus so like (laughs) there's a preoccupation and it's like gosh I feel like I do need to say something it's such a I'm learning how to be like this um spouses of Christ we have this identity as a public intercessor that's another podcast for another day 
And it's not always the best place to be, you know, because you just want to go and enjoy your day and not um, realize you're also the spouse of Christ and need, you know, and I need to be like for him, how he wants me to be for him, when he wants to me to be for him. And it may be sometimes speaking into something that I feel like is none of my business to speak into, but everything's his business, you know? And so, so when it's things like that, I do really pause and pray. Um, so, and I find that it goes the best when I don't try to finesse anything, but just say what, <laughs> what I feel called to say and move on. Um, so other boundaries I have, it's usually just sharing life. I don't really get, I, I, find that it's not respectful of myself or others to argue with people on the internet. And so I'll tell people if they want to like have like a dialogue that's more like an argument, I will message them and say like, if I'm able to, I'll try to find time for us to really speak with one another, but I don't, out of respect for myself and for you, um, we're not, I'm not participating in a comments exchange. Um, so it's really almost never that <laughs> I do that. Um, and then people who, I do have some boundaries, like I try not to spend a lot of time viewing or reading content where it seems like people are trying to, um, I hate this word, but it's the only word I have for it, like build platforms on negativity. So mm -hmm. I really try to, I think that's really doing something to like transform our relationships that's not of God. So I really try to, to not participate in a lot of that either. That's beautiful. A friend of mine asked, um, how do you deal with a kid who is lying all the time, like at ages seven and eight? And like when you ask them questions, they, they, they lie. What do you how do you deal with that? So I wonder, see, I'm like, as a clinician, I'm like, as a clinician, when you ask us that question, we just have a bunch more questions. Um, yeah. So um, my first question would be, like, does this child have um, features that look like impulsivity, ADHD, hyperactivity? So yes, actually this particular parent for their kid. Yes. Okay. So uh, that is a feature of impulsivity. Oh, okay. And so that it's called a CBT formulation is so important for those parents to get at like, what is this lying? What do I think it means about me? Right. To help take some of the charge off that, because if somebody's lying to me or I feel like somebody's not being honest, I want to fight. You <laughs> yeah, know, you and do. I have no <laughs> Do I just want to fight? And I also know, you know, one of my biggest wounds is an abandonment wound. And when someone's being dishonest, I feel like there's an instability here. Like I'm going to get hurt. Right. Mm, and so I think that's the first step is just to find out like what's underneath the charge, but then to understand that with ADHD, we do uh, kids, they go through a phase where they're more likely to lie, but with ADHD, there's an uptick in that. It's more, and it is a feature of impulsivity where they're, where, um, they're avoiding, like they're avoiding what could be an unpleasant and uh, what they believe could be unpleasant, even though there's no data that it's going to be unpleasant. Right. Mm -hmm. So I remember recently asking a client, like, they're like, I, well, I'm lying because I don't want to get in trouble. I'm like, but do you typically get in really bad trouble for that? They're like, oh, no, I don't. Like, you know, and so um, they're perceiving it's going to be unpleasant, even if it's not logical, which is a form of impulsivity. What I'll have parents do is tell their kids. So like it's to give them some space and time for that executive function, that prefrontal cortex function to come online. And so I'll say, did you play with your iPad 
when you didn't have permission to. And then I'll say, think before you answer. Take 10 seconds before you answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll give them a little bit of time to like use their executive function, which comes up short on kids with ADHD um, before they act on the impulse to lie. Um, and then to, for parents who have kids who have impulsivity, hyperactivity, or just a formal diagnosis of ADHD, to know that like from a prefrontal cortex development perspective, which is where we do our executive function, which makes making, you know, making good decisions, having self-control, regulating our emotions, that you're about three years behind. So if you have a nine-year-old, from the perspective of the development of their prefrontal cortex, you're dealing with six. Um, and so to think that as well. So they can look up stuff like that, like lying as a feature of ADHD and impulsivity. They can read more about that if they look it up. Thank okay. you. Sister, what are some of your favorite books, podcasts, other resources, either in this for the spiritual life or for counseling? What are some of your favorite just kind of resources that you would recommend? So I do love, I know that she does not always align with our faith, but I just have so much respect, like from a mental health perspective, from the of, for the work of Brene Brown. I appreciate her work and her books very much. Um, <clears throat> there's just a lot I found in her work that I think helps like people grow in the dimension of a gift, like to see themselves in a, as a gift so that they can flourish. Um, I think when we see ourselves as a gift, it's actually easier to grow in virtue and like with the help of God, overcome vice. Um, Versus like seeing, being just shamed. Right. Right. And so um, I appreciate her work very much. Um, I am always um, Father Philippe. I could reread his books just over and over and over. He stayed in our convent once. I made a pure fangirl fool of myself. I (laughs) was convinced I would not. And then I just made a fool because just so he's helped me so much in my faith. So Father Jacques, Um, Father Jacques Philippe. Yes. Yeah. And oh, then, yeah. Um, so I love to read from Brene Brown. I love to read Father Philippe. Um, I'm not a big podcast listener. I wish I could be better about it, <laughs> but I'm not a big podcast listener. The only one I'll listen to regularly is Bible in the Year, um, just because I think it's so important to daily abide in scripture, um, daily, daily, daily. Um, and then I'm trying to think what's by my bed right now. Um, I can't remember what else is by my bed right now. The books I'm working on, I keep by the bed. I'm rereading Sacrament of the Present Moment right now, which I think is a helpful like people thing for people to keep rereading and rereading, um, which just talks about like our daily life moment to moment as like sacrament and like the presence of God. Um, I think that can help greatly with mental health issues like anxiety and OCD as well, the Sacrament of the Present Moment. So that's why I picked it up because I was rereading it with a client. Um, so those are some of the things that like I'm personally interested in could recommend. Yeah. Um, what's the other question? (laughs) That's awesome. And then as we uh, land the plane here, um, is there any message you'd like to close out with? Is there anything God's put on your heart as of late that you'd love for people to hear or know? Uh, just two things like this one, like to understand that there's nothing we can do to cease to be a gift. Um, And I think that means that we can be encouraged, you know, to learn to struggle well, (laughs) you know, to get up, to go to confession. I want to encourage people to go to confession more often, um, to try to frequent that sacrament as often as possible. So that's the main thing is that um, if you see yourself as a gift, um, 
it can really create like an opportunity to flourish as a human person. And then for me personally, like where I am in my own prayer life, I guess I could share as an encouragement to others. Um, for the past 10 years, I was always waiting on something, like waiting to, for final vows, waiting to finish school, waiting to finish the hours for my license. All that stuff is done now. And so I remember I was recently talking to my spiritual director, like, like what, do, what do I wait on now? You know, and it um, has dawned on me, like the duty we have to like intentionally cultivate virtue. So like ask ourselves, like what virtue am I working to cultivate right now? And like to pick one or two and like be sincere daily about trying to become a saint, like day by day, you know, little by little. Um, so that's just my own offering from where I am right now. So you can join me there. <laughs> awesome. You, that's you, beautiful. You are a gift, sister. You are Thank a gift. You. We love you. Thank you. So where, where can people go to follow you, learn more about your work? Oh, I'm always so bad at this. I um, I do have Instagram and Twitter. I think the Instagram is sister underscore Josephine. And the Twitter might be... We'll like SR Justine, yeah, underscore CSFN. Um, but, so I'm on those two. Mostly it's just sharing about ministry and communities, sometimes about mental health, um, and sometimes just about our church. And like, I'm trying to offer various perspectives on big things that are going on in our church or things that feel big that are going on in our church. Um, so that's all that's there. It's not very spicy. Uh, <laughs> but if that's what you're looking for, I'll be happy um, to have you join there. And then our community website um, for the world, our congregation is in 11 countries, is nazarethfamily.org. And then for the United States, it's nazarethcsfn.org. So if you wanna learn more about our community. Awesome, awesome. All right, and we're gonna pray from some extra vocations and people say like i saw yes. that youtube video <laughs> with sister josephine and i just had to join her order <laughs> <laughs> it's been beautiful we have um five women in the novitiate right now two who just moved in this week in canada see it's been real beautiful so oh that's awesome yeah <laughs> oh sister thank you so much for joining us thank you it you was are lovely talking with y'all you thank too you. And when you're when you're in the area, when you're in Dallas next time, we need to have you over for dinner. So. Yes. Sister, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Stay tuned for the next one. God bless. God bless. Whoa, what did you think of that episode, Bobby Angel? Tell us in the comments. Like, comment, subscribe, all the things now. Or don't. Do whatever you want. Whatever you want. You have free will. God bless. Say hi, sister. Hi, sister. This is Sister Josephine. Hello. Hi, sister Josephine. Oh. Hello.